0: In the Dominican order, one of the most important days of our life is when we profess solemn vows. These are where we make the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience until death. It's kind of like a wedding for us, although obviously very different. It's the final act where we make a decision to follow Christ until we die as Dominican friars. So it's a momentous day in our lives. A few months after my solemn vows, I was at a Christmas party with my family, and my cousin, who's a little older than I am, was asking me some questions about how it was going. He knew this was a big deal, but like most of you, he had no idea what solemn vows were. So he was trying to be nice about it. And at one point he said something along the lines of, you know, are, are you happy with that decision? You wouldn't change that decision. And I, you know, just chit-chatted away with him, and he was being nice. And, my dad overheard this. My dad's not a very uh, you know, outgoing you know, or over-the-top kind of guy, so he didn't say anything. But then later that night, my mom and my dad and I, I was staying with my parents for a few days, got in the car, and my dad was not happy. <laughs> he heard this comment, and he was upset. He was saying things like, you know, how would, I, how would he would have liked it if I would have gone up to him a few months after he gotten married and said, are you happy with this one, or do you want to trade it in for another and I'm like, Dad, you know, I don't think he got it. I don't think he understood what solemn vows are. Be patient, you know, well, he'll figure it out. I don't think he meant any offense. But as I look back, this was many years ago now when I made my solemn vows, I think about how in many ways the difference in my father and my cousin's interpretation was more about just the prevailing worldview and the way they understood happiness and fulfillment than it was about particulars to solemn vows. You see, I think for my father, his understanding of fulfillment in the world, especially in terms of what he does, is providing for his wife and children. My father worked for the family business. I don't think he really ever wanted to work there, but I think he got to a point where he realized he had the requisite skill set and it could provide a fine life for his wife and children. So he did it for 42 years. Most young people wouldn't do that now. Most young people, when you are looking right now, when you're looking at internships and careers, you want something that not only will provide for you, right? You want something that's going to be meaningful, where you make an impact and a difference in the world. And I think that's what my cousin was asking, if what I was doing as a Dominican really was fulfilling for me. Because that's oftentimes the way we approach things as younger people. I I still consider myself somewhat younger. I'm not, but I still consider myself that. I was younger then than I am now, so there. Um... But here, that's the thing. I think for us, too, we have to also recognize that because of that, because of that worldview that we have, there's nothing wrong with it inherently. But because of that, where we look at what we're going to do from, is this going to be fulfilling for me? We have a very steep learning curve with regards to discipleship of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus doesn't come to us and say, I will do all of these wonderful things for you. It'll be fun. It'll be easy. Come and follow me. He invites us to follow him, but he invites us to give up everything in order to do so. He offers us eternal life, but we may not have that right here and right now. I want you to think of maybe the job interview, if you will, that the apostles had. When they started to talk with Jesus, Jesus, will there be money money in this for us? No, Jesus would tell them, absolutely not. You'll be poor until you die. Okay, will we be famous? Yes, you will be famous, but not until hundreds of years after you die. And you will have meddling success in this life, and you will be put to horrible deaths. That's what Jesus would have said to them. Now, if you and I were to hear that, we'd say, that's enough. I'm good, I'll find something else. But so often we do that in relationship to the Lord, don't we? We may not say it out loud, but we see the cost of discipleship. We see the reality of it, and we stand back. St. Paul tells us what those costs of discipleships are. He tells us that we're not made for immorality. That's a terrible translation. The word here in Greek is porneia, which is sexual immorality. The cost of following Jesus let's be honest, are that sexual immorality has no place in our life. And yet, we live in a world that says, if that feels good, if you feel that way, pursue it, you're fine. This is a challenge for us. This is a steep learning curve for us. And so we rejoice in the fact that when Jesus calls us, he doesn't say you have to change everything right now. What does he say? Come and you will see. The first thing in the Gospel of John, when Jesus calls the apostles, is he invites them into intimacy, into union. And he does the same with you and with me. He knows our brokenness. He knows the challenges that are in front of us. He knows the weight of our sins, and he knows the burdens that we have endured. And he looks into our hearts and he says, come and you will see. Bring me your burdens. Bring me your hearts. Come and abide with me. And what is the promise that he makes to us? Is that he will make his heart one with our heart. St. Paul said this so beautifully. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And in baptism we know that we become one with God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So wonderful and so perfect is God's union with us that our bodies are in a way way more sacred than this church because we are united spiritually with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We are one with God. And so when Jesus says, come and you will see, He's not only inviting us to take a step out and follow Him, but He's going all the way. He's coming into the depths of our hearts. He's uniting Himself with us so that we can be free. And so we are left with a choice. Will we follow Jesus? Will we keep getting up when we fall and follow Jesus? And here's the spoiler alert. If you keep getting up and following Jesus, no matter how far and hard you fall, if you keep getting up, you will win and you will go to heaven. But we must keep getting up. We must keep choosing to follow Jesus. We must keep going. We must recognize that Jesus is present to to us in the same way he was to Andrew and Peter. In a few minutes, I will hold up the consecrated bread, broken for us, and say what? The words of John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God. And we, sinners that we are, broken that we are, will receive in the Holy Eucharist God into our very flesh. What Peter and Andrew experienced in the Gospel pales in comparison to what you and I will receive in a few minutes. And so we must go and see. We must, like Samuel, stand up and say, Here I am. I don't quite get this. I don't quite understand. The ways of the Lord are foreign to me in so many ways. And I say this as someone who's been in religious life for more than 15 years. They're so foreign to me. And yet, what must we do every morning? Jesus, I love you. I want to be with you. I want to follow you. And when we do that, we are free. But it takes an awful lot of courage and conviction. And it requires a lot of us. But Jesus looks at us as he looked at Andrew and the other disciple. And with a smile and a wink, he stares into the depths of our hearts with love that will just engulf us in passion, in joy, in hope. He hears the questions. He knows the ache. And he says to us, come and you will see.